From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. This is our Halloween special, so things are about to get a bit creepy. We'll be discussing autopsy, execution, miscarriage, and other sensitive topics. So be forewarned that this episode will dip into the macabre at times. Why? Why? Why did you call yours Circle of Willis? This is where she started vocalizing in the coffin. She wasn't hanged properly. Jim, so in the course of your training, did you ever have to perform dissections? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was the there was the ordinary coursework, like uh, in dissecting brains, but I also worked in a lab briefly at the University of Washington where we we sliced human brains very very thin and then scanned them uh, to make a three D digital image of those brains. But the best experience I had. Is best the right word? So it's an interesting thing to talk about, but uh, rich? The, the richest experience, the most experiency experience, was when I assisted the pathologist at the university hospital at the University of Washington. The, the first person on whom I helped perform an autopsy was a 99-year-old woman who had dropped dead at her good friend's 100th birthday party. We didn't know what she had dropped dead of, and we had to find out. Right. So, you know, you have to put on this gear. You have to basically make sure that no part of you is exposed to anything. Not, not only that, but you have to put this special stuff under your nose to, to cut the odor a little bit. The body comes in. It's on the table. Um, and your job is to remove the viscera and the brain and the spinal cord and other kinds of things. Did you have to psych yourself up to to do that? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, even telling the story now, there's so many psychological elements to juggle, especially when you're first starting. You know, I'm not the pathologist, right? I'm the assistant, right? right. So I'm just like, you know, cutting things or pulling stuff out. Yeah, the worst parts of yeah, it. Yeah, the worst parts of it. Um, the first time I went in there and did that, I actually had at some point started to faint. Yeah. And the pathologist says, here's what you do. <laughs> she saw it starting to happen, and she's like, you go sit over there in the corner, sit down on the floor, and breathe slowly and deeply, because if you pass out, I don't want to have to be doing an autopsy on you next. Yeah. The dance is, there's body and fluid and goo and blood and just, it's gross. And it's a person who's loved and cherished and who has dignity. Right. And, you know, sort of putting that all together is is, is tricky. It's daunting. It's hard to figure out. So... I've got a story to share with you, and it's not my story, but uh, it kind of broaches the question of, like, what if dead wasn't actually dead? What do you mean? 
Okay, so close your eyes for a second and just, you know, stick with me. Let's pretend that it's mid-17th century. You're a physician in Oxford, England. You and your research partners are given the bodies of those executed for autopsy in order to study them to further science. So one day, just like any other day, a coffin with the remains of someone recently hanged arrives at your personal study because you don't have an anatomical theater. It's just kind of at your house. Okay. You and your buddy go about your normal preparation, opening a window or lighting candles so you have enough light, getting your notebooks and quills ready, making sure you're totally prepared in case you're about to make a total anatomical discovery. And when everything's in place, you go to retrieve your subject, cracking open the lid of the coffin to find that the body you were about to open up whimpers. What do you mean whimpers? Like makes noise. Makes noise? Like she's breathing. She has a pulse. She's not dead at all. (laughs) Yeah, it shot off like a rocket from shit in my pants. Exactly. So... This is actually something that happened to Thomas Willis, who's the namesake of the namesake of our show. And this week, we're going to take a dive into that name and see where it takes us. Ever since I started working for Circle of Willis, and I've told people in my life about that, they're inevitably just like, what does that mean? (laughs) What, What are you talking about? What is the Circle of Willis? Yeah. I usually try to explain, yeah, it's it's a part of the brain and it's named after this guy, Thomas Willis. And, and for most people, that really satisfies them. But it doesn't answer the implicit question of like, why? Why is the show that you work for called that? And I was wondering that, too. So one morning when my matcha latte was like really hitting, <laughs> I just like got on Wikipedia and started clicking and clicking and clicking until I ended up so far down an internet rabbit hole that I realized like, oh, I get why this might be a little bit hard to explain. And, and, and not that I found like I was finding your reasons for calling the show Circle of Willis, but I was finding something. That's kind of what I want to talk about today on, on this show. And, and we're going to take it step by step. And eventually we'll get back to the full details on this little spooky story I just talked about. But before we get any further, I'd like to introduce our production assistant, Kaylin. Hi, guys. She has been working behind the scenes on a few episodes, but this is her sort of debut on the audio side of Circle of Willis. Yeah, I'm super excited to be able to have this chance to interview. I am a fourth year. I'm graduating next fall at the University of Virginia, and I live in Brown Residential College, and I'm studying cognitive science with a concentration in neuroscience and double majoring in psychology and minoring in drama. So that's where um, my interests are kind of aligned with this podcast and some of my skills, making all the edits for you guys in the background, making it sound good. So to kick it off, Jim, could you tell us exactly what is the Circle of Willis? I'll do my best. (laughs) I'm a psychophysiologist, but I'm not a, I don't study anatomy typically. One of the things that you need to learn about is the vascular structure of the brain, how how the brain gets blood. Hmm. And right away, I was taken by the Circle of Willis because it's super duper special. 
Plus, it has a cool name. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is that it's actually got a bunch of different names. So it goes sometimes by Willis's Circle, which I really don't like. Um, the Loop of Willis, which is just too silly for me. Yeah. The Cerebral Arterial Circle. Nah. Kind of dry. Right? Now, the next one landed for me, but just not as well for other people. It's Willis's Polygon. Oh, it is more right? of a polygon. Than it, is it is more a of a polygon than it is a circle. Mm-hmm. But Circle of Willis just rolls off the tongue. And so that's why one of the things that I did immediately was try to make it a band name. What kind of music did you play? <laughs> Anything that would be even mildly successful. So whatever anybody wanted <laughs> was what I would play. Um, so what is it? The Circle of Willis is what's called a circulatory anastomosis. It's an important word, and it's all over medicine. And anastomosis is when you take two bits of body that are not connected and you connect them. Now, this is typically done in surgery. Like, you know, when you do like a bypass, mm-hmm. you take two pieces of artery, you know, in the in the heart and you slice them and then connect them and you create an anastomosis. Or you do it with the digestive system if there's like cancer of the bowel or something like that. But the Circle of Willis is a natural anatomical anastomosis and it's circulatory so it's about blood all these arteries and veins that typically would be separate are linked up by the circle of willis you have like the carotid arteries coming up through the neck and you have you know the cerebral arteries coming from other locations and they're all supplying blood to the whole brain through this centralized circle the circle of willis If any one source of blood gets blocked or cut or, you know, whatever, stenosed, the doctors say, the others can compensate for it. So this is a fail-safe mechanism in the brain for making sure that the brain gets blood. And it is conserved across animal species. You see it in all mammals, you see it in all humans, you see it in lizards, birds. It's like one of those old solutions that nature came up with that's so good that it won't ever get rid of it. Our show's logo, both past and present, is the Circle of Willis. For something so important to your brain, we don't talk about it a lot. Our next step was to find out more about Thomas Willis. So I really have to disappoint you now, but it wasn't Willis who discovered the Circle of Willis. This is Zoltan Molnar. I am professor of developmental neuroscience here in Oxford. I study how the brain is developing, how cells are produced, how they migrate, how they interconnect, and um, how they assume these functions. I'm also tutor and fellow at St. John's College. And and why did you call yours uh, Circle of Willis? Well, that's what we're hoping to figure out. So who did discover the Circle of Willis? This structure has been described by others 
Gabriele Fallopio described it in 1561, and Giulio Cesario described it in 1627. Johann Wessling described it in 1647. We also have to give、uh, credit to Johann Jakob Wetter in Switzerland, who described it in 1658. And Thomas Willis only described it in 1664. Maybe they did not describe it、uh, the same way as Willis. But if you look at some of the drawings, anatomical illustrations of these、uh, Fallopio and the others, you can see the circle of Willis in in their drawings. Johann Jakob Wetter in Switzerland in 1658 described the ring of arteries. Which he termed the continuous duct at the base of the brain, and、um, uh, in his book called *Observaciones Anatomicae*, dealing with the pathological appearance of apoplexy. So basically,、uh, all these people described it before Willis. So you might be asking, so why is it called the circle of Willis? I think it's because he had some of the best illustrations by Christopher Wren. He published it, and、um, it was very popular. Thomas Willis had a lot of very dedicated students who、mm-hmm. were on it with the branding game, just calling it Circle of Willis from the get. That's pretty funny. It's funny that he never called it that, and just everyone around him was like, "Yeah, that's the Circle of Willis." A little bit of a whisper campaign, an early <laughs> an early influencer in the scientific community, Thomas Willis. <laughs> It sounds like Thomas Willis was pretty great at describing anatomy and its functionality. This is what he writes: When his skull was opened, we noted amongst the usual intracranial findings the right carotid artery, in its intracranial part, bony or even hard, its lumen being almost totally occluded, so that the influx of the blood being denied by this route. It seemed remarkable that this person had not died previously of an apoplexy, which indeed he was so far from that he enjoyed to the last moment of his life the free exercise of his mental and bodily functions. For indeed, nature had provided a sufficient remedy against the risk of apoplexy. So, in the vertebral artery of the same side in which the carotid was.、Um, Wanting,、uh, since the size of this vessel was enlarged, becoming twice that of the contralateral vessel. So I think it's a very, very、uh, nice description of this particular case when there was a compensation in the in the circle, and、uh, there was no ne- neurological sign. Let's back up for just a moment and really start from the beginning. He was born about.、Uh, um, 402 years ago, so he was born in 1621, uh, 27th of January in Great Bedwin. So it's about 40 minutes drive from Oxford. So actually, I went to see the place where he was born in Wiltshire, and the place didn't change too much. I could actually still、uh, find the same roads. You can still see his house where he was born. It's called Ivy Cottage at Farm Lane in Great Bedwin. It is one of the oldest houses in the the place, and it has a huge, huge chimney, which suggests that maybe it was an inn before it it was turned into a house.、Uh, he didn't live there very long, because mum 
inherited uh, a house and some land in North Hingsey, which is just outside Oxford. Uh, the cottage is still here, it's called uh, Fairy Cottage, and this is where he was brought up. He had to walk from uh, North Hingsey uh, to Oxford. This is quite a walk, actually, it's like probably 40 minutes. And he went to school at High Street. He had very classical uh, upbringing of the time, but this enabled him to enter university at the age of 16. Um, and he wanted to have a career in religious studies, so he wanted to uh, pursue that. So uh, he matriculated at Christchurch and he start, started his studies. You had two factors which changed his mind. One of them was that he had to work for the college because he was not a complete fee-paying uh, member of the college. He was so-called servitor. Uh, he was allocated jobs to work with the wife of the dean. She was very interested in pharmacology, plants to extract <laughs> medicine, and that really influenced the young Willis. And the other factor was the civil war. Just to give a little bit of context, the English civil wars were a series of wars fought from 1642 to 1651. Religion and the economic power of the king were central issues of these conflicts. The English parliament rebelled against the monarchy of Charles I. Willis was royalist and he enlisted in the Dowers Regiment in the service of Charles I in 1645. Probably he never took active part in any battle or fights, uh, but nevertheless his loyalty was rewarded by the king and he was awarded the Bachelor of Medicine degree in 1646. So basically in one year he got the degree and he was ready to practice. I think this really helped him because he was spared from medical school. In those days medical school took 14 years and you had to memorize Aristotle and um, Galenus in Latin and Greek. And they really killed out all the initiatives from all these medics during that 14 years. It's better not to have an education than have the wrong type of education. You had to compete with other medics to get the patients. First-hand experience, because he could see the patients himself, and in fact, Thomas Willis's casebook was published by Kenneth Dewhurst in 1981, and from this book we know uh, what kind of cases uh, he has been looking at, where his uh, patients were, what did he charge, and uh, his descriptions of some of these conditions are just uh, incredible. You could even teach from that. He benefited from not having a medical training because he was listening to his patients, he was very curious, he observed the cases, and, and he was looking for a rational explanation. The thing that people don't often understand about science is that one of the most valuable tools that young scientists have is their naivete. When they don't know that they can't do a thing, they're often the ones that wind up doing it. It's not true, it turns out, that you can't do a thing. It's just that when you get set in your ways, you start making you know, assumptions about what you can and can't do. It's like a principle and even a 
recent guest that hasn't been on yet, mm-hmm. Alan Lightman, uh, talked about that. You know, not knowing things, not getting uh, sort of put into the rut often is an incredible source of creativity, not just for the individual, but for the whole field. You know, it was there is an intellectual uh, fermentation in Oxford during this time. Remember, uh, the term neurology was given by Willis in 1664 in the Cerebri Anatomy, and in 1665, uh, Hooke gave the name um, cell. <laughs> so it's it's amazing that uh, some of these discoveries were made at this uh, particular time. I was talking about this period with. Um, Ian Pierce, who wrote The Instance of the Finger Post, my favorite um, book ever. According to his opinion, during the Civil War, you had a couple of really talented, very smart people uh, stuck in Oxford who couldn't get other jobs in London, better paid jobs, and then they started doing science. <laughs> uh, and they, um, they included Thomas Willis, uh, Christopher Wren, Richard Lauer, Thomas Millington, Edmund King, Robert Boyle and William Petty, and they they each had some amazing contribution. For instance, uh, Christopher ran to architecture. He designed the Sheldonian Theatre. He rebuilt London after the Great Fire. Or Robert Boyle, the chemist, or William Petty. You know, he was head of uh, anatomy. He was the Tomlin's reader of anatomy, and they were meeting regularly. They had. A kind of a, an ambiance which generated these big, big discoveries. And also, if you look at the establishment of the Royal Society in London, which was established in, which was chartered in 1662 by Charles II, you see the same people. Yeah, so the themes of scientific attribution and scientific ownership, I had thought that that had kind of been a standard for science for a long time but it seems like at the time of Willis it was so much more collaborative and since then the egos in science and ownership over ideas being prioritized over that collaboration has been such an issue and it really reminded me of Brian Nosek's um, open science movement And it gives me a bit of hope that at one point, science was more interdisciplinary and collaborative, and maybe we're moving back towards that a little bit more. First of all, thank you both, because I never thought to look into it. Why was it named the circle? I never thought to look into Thomas Willis. What the hell's wrong with me? But when I learned that Thomas Willis was not just a contemporary of Christopher Wren, but like hung out with him, drinking beer or something, and then that Christopher Wren drew the pictures of the neuroanatomy for Thomas Willis's books. I couldn't, I just lost my mind. It's pretty wild to me that just how many names out of this whole group, I, I know that guy, and I know that guy, and I know that guy. Like, yeah. all of those people are, are talked about. 
At this point, we wanted to know what caused Professor Molnar to look so deeply into the history of Thomas Willis. And it sounds like his teaching of medical students was what drove him to research. When I start teaching them some of the terminology, they are really uh, puzzled. Uh, they are bombarded by Latin and Greek terminology at these very early stages, and they just don't understand why we call these structures like that. So I decided to, uh, in the, some of the first lectures and practicals, then I introduced them the history of these anatomical nomenclature, and some of them were given by Willis here in Oxford. He names uh, medullary pyramids, or anterior commissure, or inferior olives, or corpus triatum. These are names which are very unusual for a second-year medical student when they start. Thomas Willis and his friends, and also Vesalius, they were just looking at the brain, and they looked at the shape, texture, color, <laughs> and then they just uh, gave Latin and Greek terminology. For instance, uh, claustrum means enclosed space. For the medullary pyramids, they got their name because uh, that structure reminded them of the pyramids. Or olives received their names because they looked like olives. Or pineal gland received its name because it's like a pine cone. And then they ask, when were these names given? And then, then I start talking about Willis and, uh, and the contemporaries. And since we are in Oxford, it's also quite nice that I can refer to the exact streets or buildings, and I hope this will inspire them that, you know, what, what happened 400 years ago, they are still here. This group made an enormous contribution to, uh, to the understanding of the nervous system. All these uh, researchers, they didn't see any problems integrating their findings to religion. So they never questioned religion, and, and Willis was probably never questioning it. He was also very strongly royalist, and all his publications were published in um, Latin, with the exception of the last book, which was published in posthumously, so, uh, and that was in English. So some believe that publishing in Latin was also a sign of loyalty to the, to the king. Uh, of course, he was dualist. His whole, whole concept was based on, on dualism. The debate between dualism on the one hand and monism on the other is really a debate about what exists. I'd brushed up against this term a lot in my research, but we wanted to really get into it. So we had Stephen Maroney on to talk about the dualist and monist perspectives at the time. My name's Stephen Maroney. I am a philosophy PhD candidate here at UVA, and I'm also an instructor in philosophy. I teach classes on environmental philosophy and social media ethics. For dualists, there are two things that exist. There's the physical world, matter, things that you can touch, feel, see, hear. And there's also immaterial things. The obvious one to point to for them is the mind. So for example, if you're shopping at the grocery store and you stop in the dental floss aisle and you see the description, minty fresh flavor, the question for a dualist is, where does that flavor exist? This is just like you were referencing earlier. Yeah, like the, the body goo and fluid and stuff versus who they are and, and how we feel about them. Exactly. Is it a piece of corporeal reality or does it exist in a kind of immaterial form in your mind? People who oppose this dualistic picture say, no, actually, everything 
including ideas and feelings and everything that exists in the mind, is ultimately reducible to a single type of thing, whether it be an atom or in the 17th century, they sometimes referred to them as monads or in the case of Anne Conway, spirits. But essentially the difference between a dualist and a monist really boils down to what things exist and in particular, what exists in the mind. While Kaylin and I were researching Thomas Willis, we came across Anne Conway, who was a patient of his. And this was a big reason we brought in Stephen Maroney to talk about any of this. And we didn't mention Anne Conway in our, our email to him. We're doing a thing about Thomas Willis and dualism and other philosophies prevailing in 17th century England. And he wrote back and he was like, oh, I, I think you're probably, you know, interested in Anne Conway and <laughs> Hermonism and, and, and what she thought. Yeah, so she's a fascinating figure, mostly because of how unique her position was. She lived in the second half of the 17th century. She published one book in, in I think, 1690, and it was published posthumously. She was a monist, and she thought that, well, it's not that God somehow supervenes on the physical world or has to influence it through some mysterious way of causation. It's that everything, God is literally in everything. Everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we project into the world, all of our sensations, all of our representations, are manifestations of God. The really cool part about this view is that literally everything is alive. Dust, couches, microphones, everything is living. And in particular, everything, because it's made out of the same stuff, can be formed or morphed into everything else. Think of like Animorphs, basically. <laughs> it's also wrapped up in this kind of perfectionist narrative of um, if you are really sinful in this life, then you'll be reincarnated as a different combination of stuff that isn't quite as exciting, like maybe you'll be a coyote next time. And then if you really mess up again, then, then you could be reincarnated as a chair or a table or, or lake or something. The, the really amazing thing that follows from this is the kind of interconnectedness of the world that is um, really coming back into fashion now. You know, a lot of people would agree with her that, yeah, the world is made up of the same stuff fundamentally. You know, uh, plastic and wood and flesh are all the same things just put together in different ways. And that was an insight that she had in the middle of the 17th century. This was, she was writing decades before Newton published uh, Principia, um, which was 1687 or something like that. So Isaac Newton's ideas weren't in the world yet. We didn't have a kind of like mechanical understanding of the machinations of the universe. And yet this woman who was almost certainly the only woman in these circles that she was running in these intellectual circles in England, alongside people like David Hume and John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, uh, she had this amazing insight about the interconnectedness of all matter. She was severely, you might say, today we might say disabled uh, by her constant migraines. That was one of the defining features of her like life was that she was constantly in pain. It's very interesting how they tried to treat uh, migraine and Willis did write about uh, migraine and he considered it uh, the condition of the vasculature which is very interesting. 
because some modern uh, concepts also make the vasculature, uh, you know, in the cause of relationship. They usually just cut the jugular vein and let some blood out. This is what one, one treatment for, for migraine. We wondered if there was any evidence of how her philosophy influenced her own thinking and feelings about her health problems. I don't know much more about her biography other than I know she sought a lot of different remedies, you know, as you would if you were in constant pain. But the way in which you become a philosopher at this time period looks a lot different than it does now. Now you have to go to a university, you have to study uh, under, you know, one person. For the most part, you have to take classes, you have to then teach classes. Back then it looked different. Back then you had to have a lot of money so that you didn't have to work all the time. Predominantly, you had to be a man, and it helped if you were in England if you were a white man. More importantly, it mattered who you knew. So how would you get access to reading, um, for example, one of her contemporaries, French philosopher and mathematician Descartes? He's famous for a lot of things, one of them being a dualist picture of the universe. How would you get access to his writing if you weren't a wealthy aristocratic man Descartes wrote in Latin. (laughs) His work was only published in French years after. So Anne Conway, despite her struggles physically, had to have had a very wealthy and um, leisure-giving upbringing in order to be in a position to even read the things that intellectuals in England in the 17th century were talking about. So it's a much in some ways a much more closed off system, but in other ways it was a lot more liberatory because you didn't have to have a degree in order to sit in a room with you know, David Hume, who was one of the most famous philosophers of his time period. Professor Molnar also pointed out some major differences between now and then within the field of medicine. I think probably science worked in a, in a different way then. I don't think they had such big egos in, in those days. They were all working together. They dissected together. They, they discussed science together. I think the whole uh, ambience must have been very um, different from today. So probably there was not much competition. And Willis always acknowledged help. So in his books, he is giving uh, credit to Christopher Wren for the drawings. And also he's giving credit to Lauer, uh, who was his student and was uh, performing most of the dissections. So I don't think Ego was involved uh, in, in those days. Willis never left England. Whereas in those days, it was very common that they, anatomists especially, they, they, and medics, they studied in um, Italy, Padua or Leiden, uh, where anatomy was a bit more advanced. It was slightly later that London had an anatomical theatre and also the charter allowed uh, professors to claim the bodies of executed prisoners for for uh, public anatomical dissections. So Willis was probably exposed to all these uh, discoveries through the constant flow of scholars uh, to Oxford, which was already uh, present. But himself, he did not travel. For one year, I think he overlapped with William Harvey at Merton uh, Street, and Harvey described the circulatory system. So it must have been very interesting when they were going into the neighboring house <laughs> in the evening. Yeah. 
things have just become a lot more professionalized in, in both of those subjects. After Thomas Willis's time, but still in that that sort of culture, there, there are many potential examples, but the sort of quintessential example is Goethe. You know, he's writing novels and poetry and plays and scientific treatises and studying architecture and just doing sort of all the stuff that he wanted to do and thought was interesting. He was conversant with and often close to the world's greatest scientists at the time and artists. And it wasn't like the sort of two cultures idea that you have now between the sciences and the humanities. It was mm-hmm. all sort of, it was all part of knowledge. I think that's a huge part of what we're trying to achieve with this podcast is like connecting scientific research to the world around it and pointing out all of these different connections that are sometimes hard to approach when you're just, you know, a research paper is <laughs> slapped on your desk or um, even, you know, through scientific journalism, you you are presented with these concepts. But often we're, we're getting these things in little bite-sized pieces mm-hmm. or, or just in their own uh, right, which is great. But it's somehow encouraging that Thomas Willis was coming up and, and becoming a significant physician at this time where a lot of his peers were also building up their fields. Okay, now I think we're finally ready to come back to the story we started this special with. And this is the story of Anne Green. It's a very interesting um, story. She worked in the house of Sir Thomas Reed, who was a justice of the peace. She was a scullery maid. She was 22 years old. And Green has been seduced by Geoffrey Reed. He had a grandson who was like 16 or 17 who would like hit on her all the time. And they had sex. She got pregnant. And she had a miscarriage. Pretty early on. After 17 weeks of of pregnancy. Didn't really know that she was pregnant at the time. Basically, there was a law. If you hid a pregnancy and it resulted in a miscarriage. Then it's murder. She was prosecuted by the grandfather of the man who got her pregnant. Holy shit. So she, as far as I can tell at least, the midwife testified that like, yeah, this fetus was like entirely underdeveloped. There's no way it would have survived. It's not that she killed the infant, um, which is what she was being tried for. All of the evidence was really in her favor and it didn't matter. (laughs) Found guilty and hanged in Oxford Castle on 14th of December in 1650. Uh, Willis was dissecting uh, usually with uh, William Petty, who uh, was the Tomlin's reader of anatomy, a position which is still associated to Christchurch uh, College. Petty could claim the body of uh, 14 executed prisoners a year for uh, dissections. And in those days, in Oxford, there was no anatomical theatre. So they just dissected in their studies. And he lived in Buckley Hall. And uh, this is where Anne Green's body was delivered. 
she wasn't hanged properly. <laughs> uh, in fact, she was hanging for half an hour. When they hang someone, it's not you know the lack of oxygen. It's it's really the drop, uh, and your body weight is basically dislocating your your cervical spine, and then you have uh, this so-called hangman fracture, and then your brainstem is compressed, and that's basically instantaneous death. The relatives, according to the records, they even tried to accelerate her death and they were hanging on her feet and <laughs> but then she was cut down half an hour later and uh, she was put into the coffin and delivered uh, to Patty and this is where she started vocalizing in the coffin the soldiers wanted to help her to die and they were stamping on her chest and if you think about it they could have been restarting her heart famously is one of the best ways to save someone in a scenario of circulatory distress. Yeah, Thomas Willis and William Petty, who are like autopsy bros, crack it open and they see that she's breathing and that she has a pulse. Then she started to come around and uh, Willis and Petty uh, let some blood out. That was the treatment in those days. And they also pushed down some feather through her throat. They um, give her a tobacco enema because that'll help. Just the things you do. The things I mean, you do. I mean, here, okay. <laughs> I want to pause on the tobacco enema for a second. <laughs> tobacco is a stimulant. It is a stimulant. And you know why enemas happen? Because there are very rapid absorption um, into your bloodstream through the lower bowel. Well, so that's what they're um, trying to do too. So you get a tobacco enema, and it could very well be like smoking a bunch of cigarettes all of a sudden. That's true. And then they put her in bed with another lady to warm her up. And the woman was tasked to massaging her limbs and, and keep blood flow going and, and warm her up. And she recovered. She lived, but she didn't just live, right? She. She kind of flourished. She even took the coffin a few days later with her. <laughs> so Thomas Moore died three days after Anne Green's attempted execution. Perhaps out of fright from her resurrection? Basically, uh, Willis and, and, and Patty, they produced a small flyer, which uh, there is a copy in the Bodleian Library about this, where they describe this whole story, a wonder of wonders, because they resurrected, uh, you know, somebody from death. And after this, they became extremely famous and uh, they had a huge flow of patients and they could charge anything for their services. Willis's career took off. He moved to Merton Street into a much bigger house and then he started practicing there. This Barclay Hall where all this happened is still uh, here, off from High Street in Oxford. And now, it is hosting a restaurant called Chiang Mai Kitchen, which is a very good Thai restaurant. So at the end of the academic year, when we finish neuro teaching, I usually invite all the people who helped us with the teaching to this restaurant, uh, because this is the, the, the place where Willis's career really took off. The trauma in this scenario from so many parties, I mean, 
her family and friends trying to aid in her death, her obviously being stuck in a coffin for presumably hours on end, and then Willis and Petty seeing someone come to life. And I mean, when you're as religious as them, I can only imagine their reactions to that. From my perspective, like she had a little bit of humor about it because she took her coffin home with her. <laughs> in a couple of days, like, oh, well, at least I got a coffin out of yeah. this. Eventually, this will come in handy. Although there were some in the public who wanted Anne Green to be executed again, there was no one around willing to prosecute her. Overall, it was deemed an act of God that she was alive and the matter was laid to rest. Going back to the philosophical concepts of the day, we asked Stephen Maroney what a dualist might think of an apparent resurrection. This is a really interesting case because how you respond to a case of resurrection really depends on what kind of dualist you are. Dualism goes way back, as far back at least as Plato in the fourth century BC. So in one of his dialogues, Plato wrote in dialogues through the mouth of Socrates, in the Meno, for example, Socrates tries to demonstrate that the soul is immaterial and immortal. And the way he does this is through an argument that's famous among philosophy circles. Uh, it's unfortunately dubbed the slave example. Socrates teaches a servant to uh, do geometry. And this is supposed to be, the argument starts with, um, how do you learn anything? If you already know it, then you can't search for knowledge because you know it, it's right there. But if you don't have knowledge, you don't know something, how would you recognize it when you found it? So Socrates then reasons through his kind of antagonistic questioning uh, with his interlocutor that, well, actually everything that could be knowledge, we already have within us. We've just forgotten it. And the process of learning is what he refers to as recollecting knowledge. And he demonstrates this by taking someone who is illiterate, doesn't know anything about mathematics or arithmetic or reading, and teaches them a really complex geometric equation just by asking them questions about what they already know. So Plato thought that the world was divided amongst the material things here on Earth and uh, the immaterial things that he referred to as forms. So he was a dualist in the sense that he thought there really were two worlds. There is the world of immaterial forms. Every object that exists on Earth has a form, and it's uh, formed in the image of it. So fast forward then to the 17th century, and we have over 2,000 years of people thinking about this kind of dualism. And it's broken up into lots of different types of dualism. Some people were really influenced by Plato. So if they, if you, if, if that kind of dualist were to see a resurrection, they would say, well, if this really is what it appears to be, then what's happened is the body died. The soul, because it's immortal, didn't, and it refused to leave the body. And so in that sense, maybe someone might say that that person who came back to life is actually a different person. It's the same soul, but the body died, and then the soul kind of, you know, brought into existence a new human using the same form. Another way of looking at it uh, would be uh, if you're, say, uh, what's referred to as a substance dualist. This is someone who believes that there are two different types of substances here in the world. There's 
the immaterial mind that can't be reduced to physical matter, and then there's matter. They would say, well, the mind uh, clearly is still there if the if that person came back to life, uh, and the matter perhaps never actually died. Maybe it just appeared to die. So a substance dualist would have a harder time explaining how uh, the body could die and then come back to life. And a monist? Well, I think a monist um, in this time period, 17th century England, may put it in terms that are deeply influenced by Christianity. Um, So for example, uh, Anne Conway, Lady Anne Conway, as she was referred to, she thought everything was a compound collection of uh, little tiny particles that she called spirits. These spirits were literally pieces of God that were organized in lots of different ways. The cool and kind of spooky part about this is that because God is immaterial, that means, on her view, that the corporeal physical world doesn't exist. Everything is immaterial. Everything is literally part of God. So she thinks, then, that while there's no such thing as a difference in kind between the mind and the body, everything is one substance. They just differ in terms of complexity. It's hard to wrap your head around how they would see resurrection because, on her view, everything is already immaterial. There's no such thing as the physical world separate from this other world. It's all kind of a manifestation of God. There's so much here that it's it's killing me. I feel like really lucky that I thought that the Circle of Willis was funny because I didn't realize how much was underneath it. After we stopped recording, Stephen talked a bit about how any topic starts with the objective topic itself, but eventually you might begin talking about how does the world work the way it works. And I feel like that's how this ended up. I mean, Circle of Willis has both, okay, this is a psychology, neuroscience, focused podcast, and this is a neuroatomical thing that's extremely important to getting the brain to work. But also, Willis is so important to science as a whole, and then his contemporaries, and then what does it mean for us to have a brain in itself, our soul's refusal to leave the body in the resurrection? I mean, it really is so expansive in meaning that it's hard to describe. I think what I'm struck by is just how small of a chance it seems that this anatomical part was named after Thomas Willis. I mean, he he didn't discover it. He wasn't the first to draw it. Maybe he was, you know, the the best to describe it. Um, But he didn't call it the Circle of Willis. It was only because he had basically like a fan club (laughs) of his students who, who called it the Circle of Willis. You know, it could have been named after anyone else, but instead it was named after this guy who didn't really have much medical training and was a fabulous, you know, for the time period, (laughs) medical practitioner. 
um, amazing at describing malady and, and anatomy. And he was plugged into this whole world of intellectuals, uh, which included people like Anne Conway and and even just the fact that it's like it's him who treats this poor woman, Anne Green, after her failed execution. I can't believe that you found this story. <laughs> I can't believe it. I, I've been carrying around my uh, my sort of somewhat tongue-in-cheek but also authentic delight at the name Circle of Willis since 1991. Never thought about Thomas Willis. Occasionally, now that we have the internet, um, I think years ago, about four or five years ago, maybe saw Thomas Willis and was like, oh, that's, you know, it just I just put him in the bin of old guy who did a thing and now we have to live with his name. But I thought it was funny to have a band and a podcast called Circle of Willis because it looked like a little cartoon man and had a cool effect bringing blood up to the brain that I thought was loosely perhaps, but metaphorical for what I was trying to do with the podcast. And now the layers underneath are so amazing. I, I can't thank you guys enough for doing this. Uh, my pleasure. It was really fun to, to kind of fall down this rabbit hole and, and be able to keep going on it. I find it extremely wild that Thomas Willis, he treated this woman uh, for whom execution had failed. But, like, she could have easily been strangled. I mean, she was hanging for 30 minutes, right? We know that hanging doesn't kill you by strangulation. It kills you by actually destroying the structure of your brain stem. But still, being strangled for 30 minutes is just as likely to kill you as anything else. Doesn't sound fun. No, exactly. So I have to wonder, like, what kept blood going to her brain at that time? Oh, let me give you the answer. It was the Circle of Willis. <laughs> I just think this it's is, wild. This is without this this is without any question. The Circle of Willis, possibly because of its multiple redundant pathways to supply blood to the brain is what was keeping her alive while she hung by the neck for a half an hour. People yanking on her. With people yanking on her. Wild. It definitely stuck with a lot of people, this whole story. There were multiple pamphlets written about it afterwards to kind of spread the news of her revival. Here's another wild thing. The two experts we talked to, they both focus on telling these like deeper stories. So Zoltan tells all of these stories to his students so they understand why neuroanatomy is named the way it's named. That's his whole thing. He he brings people out to the, the places that this happened at in Oxford. He goes and visits those places with students and, and research assistants. And Stephen Maroney, his pet project is talking about what the lives of philosophers were like and why they believed the things that they believed in a real materialistic way. It was just wild. Asking this question just connected me to more and more people 
who are trying to do the same thing that this show, Circle of Willis, is trying to do, which is kind of broaden the scope of of what discovery implies and means and, and what it implicates, what's implicated in the process of knowledge. Like, it expands beyond just those two formative what is the Circle of Willis, who is Thomas Willis, so quickly because it's so interconnected. And became really interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, usually, you know, we're trying to make things interesting. That's like <laughs> a big part of our job is like framing stuff. And um, But there's so much just like crazy stuff in yeah. this whole story and, and what we've talked about with these people. Um, and it helps maybe not answer the question of why this show is called Circle of Willis, but about what that means, that this show is mm-hmm. called Circle of Willis. And I think it's okay. It's beyond a singular answer. All the different pathways to interest and knowledge, the metaphor deepens. We're going to leave you off with some words from our guests. Stephen Maroney hosts his own podcast called Talking Union, which focuses on issues of interest for the United Campus Workers of Virginia. Well, one of the things that marks the period of the 17th century through to now is just a radical explosion in how many people have access to the conversation. So if you were to take a poll amongst philosophers who work on philosophy of mind or metaphysics right now and ask them, are they monists or dualists, you'd probably get hundreds of different answers that don't easily and neatly fall into that dichotomy. And Zoltan Molnar hosted many conversations with other experts during the pandemic to celebrate Thomas Willis's 400th birthday. You can find those recordings and his other work on Oxford's Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics website. Why I think Willis is my hero is because he was a practicing clinician and he was observing his patients before uh, they died and he tried to correlate that with all the findings in the brain and in the vasculature. And I think it's a very, very powerful uh, combination. So I think he deserves it uh, to, to have the circle of Willis Uh, because he established a a huge school of neurology, Uh, his students were doing extremely well, and uh, the students started calling it the Circle of Willis, and then it spread. Special thanks to everyone who made this episode possible. In particular, our two special guests, Zoltan Molnar and Stephen Maroney. And you will definitely hear more from Kaylin in the future. You can find information about the music used in this special on circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of our old episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world.